this has impact. This has an impact on how we will think and how we will create and how we will know things in the future. So this is one of the things that I highlight in, in the alchemy of us, that this simple invention, which was used to make more sophisticated telephone systems, which eventually became our computer and the Internet, is actually rewiring our brains right now. This is Science for the People. I'm Carolyn Wilkie, and I'm a science journalist. From the moment you groggily hear the sound of an alarm from a clock or your phone to your evening hours powered by electric lights, you're surrounded by objects made up of materials. Though that matter often escapes our notice, each piece of it has its own backstory, one that's entangled with human history, culture, biology, and how we relate to the natural world. I'm here with material scientist Anissa Ramirez, author of the book The Alchemy of Us. It shares the stories and the seemingly unlikely people behind everyday materials, including steel, glass, silicon, and quartz. In her book, Anissa writes about how humans have been in a dance with such materials, transforming them so that they in turn shape us and the society that we live in. So thanks so much for joining me today, Anissa, and thank you for telling me about your book. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I'd like to start with a quote from your introduction. Um, I just found this quote beautiful. Everything around us is made of something, but not only do we live in a material world, we are in a dance with these materials, too. We form them, but they, in turn, form us. Um, so with the stories from the book, that really rung true for me. What brought you to that realization? You know, this book has been part of my own evolution as a material scientist, uh, because what I learned is that we manipulate materials. We're interested in looking at atoms and how they bond and then looking at the properties. But I never really thought about how the inventions that we create actually shape culture. And so that's what the premise of The Alchemy of Us is about. It's about how we create something and then that in turn shapes us in some way. Our lives are going to be impacted in, in surprising ways and un with unintended consequences and, and in subtle ways sometimes too. Hmm. Yeah. You also talk about how, you know, your early science career when you were a student, there were some of the parts of it were just boring and dull. Were there, <laughs> which I think is the case for many of us that study right. science, parts of it aren't actually that interesting. Um, right. Were, were there any of these stories that maybe would have helped you to have known them earlier? Well, they definitely would have kept me, they would have motivated me to hang in there. Um, you know, the way that they teach introductory classes, they're, they're designed to weed people out, uh, to take out the people who they think are not as driven. But if I had heard during that time while I was an undergrad about how stories about people who made inventions and how they, how they had to overcome barriers, well, that would have given me a nudge to just keep to hang in there. So that's what I mean by The Alchemy of Us uh, being a book that really would have I really would have benefited from because it wasn't just the dry topic, but it was the human side of the story, which was definitely felt, which I definitely felt was being squeezed out of my introductory classes. Mm -hmm. And are there, is there any particular persistent character that, that you'd want to share with our listeners? L let me back up and just say that some of the characters I never even heard about. And that also shaped the book. Uh, and, and so as, as I was writing the book, here I am, an African-American woman, and as I was writing the book, it definitely could have been a book about uh, white men and their inventions. And But I, I found s stories about women who made some impact in many of the things that are around us today. So that was one of the things that shaped the book. And as for 
people who motivated me. Well, one of my favorite stories, one of the hardest stories for me to write was actually the story about Polaroid. Mm-hmm. It was a story of uh, two African-American employees at Polaroid who had discovered that their employer had actually uh, made a technology that was buttressing a uh, South African apartheid system. And most of us, we may see something, but maybe we don't feel particularly brave enough to do something about it, or we'll, we'll say something and we'll tweet about it or we'll have a hashtag. But they really put their skin in the game, meaning that they, they started protesting and uh, they were actually fired from their, their positions. I find that story to be uh, very inspiring because these are 20-something, 30-something-year-old people who are, who are making significant changes and doing it mostly on their own. Yes, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how they learned about what Polaroid was doing and what they, uh, what some of the actions they took to make their voices heard in that, in that setting? Sure. So in the in the chapter called Capture, which is about photography and the alchemy of us, I tell the story of Caroline Hunter, who is an African American woman who is a chemist who is working at one of the best companies in the country, which is Polaroid. And she's going to lunch with uh, Ken Williams, who's a friend of hers, and he's in the art department. And as they leave his office, they see on the bulletin board a mock-up for an identification card. And it says, Department of the Mines, Republic of South Africa. Now, these two look at each other and they're like, what, is, what does Polaroid have to do with South Africa? So, see, they knew that South Africa had, this South, had an apartheid system. And so they investigated and they went to the library and they read old newspapers and they found that what they learned is that all black South Africans had to carry with them a passbook. And a passbook was a 20-page document which told officials where they could go, where they could not go. And at the heart of the passbook was a picture that was made with, uh, with was a picture that was created by Polaroid. So this technology, which was much beloved in the United States, that everyone wanted for their Christmas gift to have an instant camera that made film automatically – was also being used for a more nefarious reasons on the other side of the globe. So this is what they discovered. And they did what most employees should do, which is they reached out to their management and they said, look, we, we see this and we don't think this is a necessarily a good route for the company that we love to be doing. And management uh, said, well, let's have another meeting about it and said, well, you know, we are we do have a position in in South Africa, but it's not very big and we don't think it's significant. But all you needed to do is to have a few cameras and lots of film in order to buttress this system. So Caroline Hunter and Ken didn't think this was particularly right. And so they became activists. They started the Polaroid Revolutionaries Workers Movement. And they started uh, putting flyers up because this is before the age of the Internet. This is all happening in the 70s. And uh, they started informing a network of activists to to have rallies and to inform people about uh, the role that Polaroid has in South Africa. It ends up that they uh, Polaroid um, countered by putting advertisements in newspapers to say, well, you know, we've explored our role in South Africa and we don't think it's significant and we're going to do things to uh, increase the education in, in South Africa. But But Ken and Caroline from their research knew that this wasn't really enough because the system was really rigged so that no black South African could really say anything negative about the system. So although Polaroid was getting information that this is helpful, it wasn't actually true. So uh, so for seven years, Caroline and Ken petitioned. They reached out to various different uh, companies and churches and student groups to divest from Polaroid. 
and eventually Polaroid stopped selling its uh, camera uh, system to the South African government. Yeah. Yeah, that's really an amazing story. It's about um, both the power of people who are in a position to do something, but also it speaks to the power that that companies that make these materials have. Um, I think another example of that also in the photography chapter was um, about Kodak and how they had a lot of uh, influence over the photographs that, that people took, including people with dark skin in America. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you mind also talking a bit about the Shirley card and how uh, pressure from Americans of color made Kodak change their product? Sure. So uh, in the 1960s, African-American mothers saw something strange in the class photo of their children of their children. What they found is that black children didn't come out as well as white children in the film. And what they found is that the film was actually tailored to produce and to render lighter skin better. You see, there was a bias built into the formulation. This had been hidden because when schools were segregated, white children were photographed separately from black children. And so everyone looked fine when they were separated. But when the class photo of all these children together was produced, well, black children were in the shadows. So black mothers petitioned Kodak to please change your formulation. Kodak really didn't do anything about it, but it was when companies such as uh, manufacturers for furniture and manufacturers for chocolate, when they petitioned Kodak to change its formulation, that there were changes that were made. See, both of these companies needed dark woods and light woods to be able to be rendered in a picture. And uh, the chocolatiers needed light chocolate and dark chocolate to also be rendered in a picture because they needed it for advertising. So when these unli- when this unlikely couple of furniture makers and chocolatiers reached out to Kodak and said, you need to change your formulation, well, that formula was then indeed changed. And it took about a decade and a half be- before a new formulation was put out, uh, a type of color film which could render dark woods, dark chocolate, and dark skin. Mm, yeah, so a lot of it was about economic pressures as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so I also want to talk about um, so much of the book is just about materials that are really backdrops to our modern lives. And I think some of these materials like steel and glass, people are so used to seeing them that they mm-hmm. hardly think about the stories behind these materials. That's um, right. It's absolutely right. I mean, someone made these things. Everything around us is a material and someone made it and it became part of our, our built world. And so we don't think much about it. But because of that material, because of the decisions that were made, uh, our our world was shaped by it, uh, and we were born into these we were born into these worlds. But there was a world before those materials were present, and so that's what I show in the Alchemy of Us about the origin story for the material, and then how the world was shaped as a result of it. Yes, yeah, and one of those materials that I was really um, interested in talking about is glass, because I mean it's actually a material that we just kind of look through. Um, <laughs> But can you talk about how glass is uh, was just so crucial to scientific breakthroughs? Absolutely. And, and I, like you, didn't think much about glass. I knew that it was a very old material. Uh, ancient Egyptians used glass. If you go to the museum, you'll see small vases and, and uh, small um, ornamental things that were made by ancient Egyptians. So I knew it was around for a very long time. 
Um, and, you know, we know about glass because it's window. we use it for windows and we use it for glassware, you know, when we're drinking something. But glass is very important in the science community because science is based on observation and we need to be able to look through something and put it in different environments, heat it up, add acids to it, and we need to be able to witness what's going on. So glass has been very, very important, but we never really had very good scientific glass. It ends up that early thermometers weren't very good. And if you can remember old thermometers where there was mercury inside, it ends up that you could use it for a couple of times and then it wouldn't work very well because what would happen is that the mercury wouldn't go back down to its lower position. And the reason was because the glass was changing. As you heated and cooled and heated and cooled, the glass changed its shape and so the mercury started to creep up. Now for us, that's no big deal. If we're just measuring our temperature to see if we have a fever, you know, we if we're off by a couple of degrees, we're okay. But in the scientific community, you really need to be as precise as you can. And if your thermometers don't work, uh, well, then it's hard to know if you're repeating things uh, from one situation to the next. So it was very important that we had good scientific glass. And what I talk about in The Alchemy of Us is about a gentleman who created uh, a wonderful new type of glass that had a little bit of boron in it that allowed us to have thermometers that were uh, that were accurate and then later beakers that could survive not being melted by acids because that used to happen and how this was so important. So it, it allowed us to have new discoveries, create new medicines and the like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At the time when his name was Otto Schott. Is that right? Yeah, Otto Schott. Right. Exactly. Was was working. That glass actually was really not a scientific endeavor. And he sort of brought brought a scientific eye and practice to it. Um, Absolutely. I mean, no one was looking at glass. People wanted to do, there were so many far more interesting things going on when auto shot was around. Organic chemistry was a hot topic. People were making new things like uh, vanilla, uh, the flavoring, which we take for granted, but making an imitation version of it. That was very, that was very hot. Uh, People were making new colors like mauve, uh, because before that discovery, the clothes that we wore were very dull colored because they were made from dyes from plants and from animals. But uh, but a, synthetic, a synthetically made color gave rise to vibrant colors. So people were really excited about organic chemistry. But Otto Schott, he's like, I'm going to look at glass. And people are like, that, that sounds boring. But that was very important because we need glass for everything that we do in science. Right. And you even talk about how glass um, was this ancient material that ushered in a new electronic age. Absolutely. So, again, we overlook glass and we don't think much about it, but our ability to see through glass has allowed us to witness new things. And I talk about J.J. Thompson, who was a physicist who was no friend to glass because he was actually very much a klutz. He would break things very easily in his laboratory. But he had a wonderful assistant, Ebenezer Everett, who made these wonderful contraptions so he, so that – um, J.J. Thompson could observe cathode rays, which were, which were the hot topic at the time. And what he discovered is that a cathode ray is actually made of the small negative particle that they didn't even know existed. We know it today as the electron. The electron never would have been uh, found if it wasn't for the ability to see it in action through glass. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a really exciting story. Um, another aspect that that story, the whole story of glass um, highlighted for me is how human events can shape material. Um, and this came up over and over and over when I read the book. Um, there's this relationship between technology and materials. And in this case, with also with war. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, do you mind talking a little bit about how Americans came to get the glass that they needed? Well, we don't talk about much about war and science, but there's definitely a linkage. A lot of the technologies that are around us have been uh, offsprings from war. And one of them is Pyrex. It ends up that uh, the this, cl- this indestructible glass was actually a German uh, discovery, and it was patented in Germany. And uh, German glass came into the United States. It had... Uh, it, it, it benefited from very low tariffs. So people really love to have this type of glass. But when America, when America entered into war with Germany, we didn't have to honor uh, German patents anymore. In fact, they became available to us. And so Pyrex actually became part of an American uh, technology because we uh, inherited, for, for lack of a better term, a lot of the technologies from our enemy at the time, which was Germany. So I talk about in uh, in the Alchemy of Us about how Pyrex was uh, was brought to us by war. Right, and this relationship with war also came up a little bit in the Steel chapter. Not so much the taking of technological know-how, but um, just that better steel was was something that was needed for for more durable cannons. Um, Absolutely. I mean, again, as I said. War is a motivator. It it generates a lot of money. That's why, you know, people like to have war. But it also uh, generates a lot of technology. And steel was needed for better cannons uh, because cannons were very brittle, meaning that when a cannonball was shot, the cannon would explode. And that wasn't good. Well, you wouldn't hit your enemy because it would explode and it would shatter and it would shatter on your side. So you would perish as a result of that. That so incredibly dangerous. Uh, that's not good. It's very dangerous. So what they needed was better materials to handle uh, the cannonball being shot. And so steel was uh, an out outcome from that. Yeah, but actually in the book, you write about steel a lot as a material that brought the nation together. Do you mind do you mind sharing about that? Well, before steel, America is a huge country. And at one time when we used to travel by stagecoach, uh, which would go about 18 miles an hour. Traveling 60 miles was huge. So if a son was leaving his family to go make his way in the world and he left and it was more than 60 miles, his mother would hug him like she would never see him again because 60 miles was huge. But with steel, 60 miles was just an hour away. So it connected the country. This huge country was connected in a new way. And as a result of steel, foods could be could travel across the country too. We used to eat foods that were just locally grown. But once we had steel rails, well we can get beef from Chicago and we can get sugar from Louisiana and we can get corn from Minnesota. Our palate completely changed. Also we can get products from different places as well. So the economy was bolstered by the ability to move things across and that was made possible by steel. And that's what I talk about in the alchemy of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's another that almost ties in really closely to how um, these different technologies and the materials that you write about have transformed society and culture even. Um, 
I'm thinking particularly of the chapter where you write about the recording of sound for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's just such an interesting idea to think about what it would be like to hear recorded sound for the first time. Um, can you share a little bit about the, uh, I don't know, outpouring of recording and creating new culture that's happened because of materials? Sure. So uh, when we think about the creation of collecting sound, we often think of Edison. Edison created a phonograph. And it was a very simple idea, but it hadn't been done before. And uh, the ability to not only record sound, but play it back. There were ways to record sound, but you couldn't really play it back. And so he was able to uh, put a, a foil of tin around a cylinder. He applied a small pin to it. Uh, attached to that pin was a was a diaphragm, which moved with sound. And as sound hit that diaphragm, it went in and out of the tin, and that's how he was able to record sound. Well, then this phonograph was just the the ancestor to what we know as record players and cassettes and the like. But when phonographs became popular in American society, they changed culture in in many ways. One way is that they actually shaped music. See, phonographs weren't particularly sensitive to soft tones, such as guitars. So music Music started to focus on selecting instruments that were very loud, like tubas and, and, and the like. So if you think about jazz, when you hear trumpets and tubas and xylophones, those were selections not only because the musicians enjoyed playing that, it's because softer tones such as cellos and guitars couldn't be recorded by the phonograph. So the phonograph actually shaped music. It shaped culture. Also, at the time when phonographs were very, very popular, there was the race politics was that they weren't, there wasn't a mixture between black and white artists, but they were each creating their own type of music. Well, what they could do is they could buy records that each person was making and they actually inspired each other. And so this, these records became like dispatches of culture between these segregated groups. And that's what gave rise to the creation of the music that uh, the music of the time from blues to rock and roll. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's really an intersection of sharing and how that's been enabled by materials. Yeah. Things that we wouldn't, you know, we overlook technology, but technology is actually part of culture. And so it allowed us to share it. It allowed to, us to cross those racial divides. People wouldn't cross those racial divides, but records could. And so here we have a technology that's acting like a dispatch, a, a dispatch of culture. Mm-hmm. So it occurs to me that you've been kind of sitting with these characters and these stories for quite a while now. Um, <laughs> but at one point, um, maybe some of these people were new to you. How did you go about finding their stories? Oh, many of these people were new to me. And, and those who I knew, such as Edison and Morris and Einstein, I learned new facts about them. And that's what I share in The Alchemy of Us. So uh, when reading The Alchemy of Us, you're going to find out about characters you never heard about. And if you if there are characters that you have heard about, well, you're going to learn something new about them because that's that was my journey. And in order to do this work, it requires uh, research where you spend a lot of time in the archives. I interviewed a lot of people. You read a lot of books, read, I don't know, 400 books or something like that uh, to get to find details. So you'd, you'd read a very, very thick book. And in that book, I would find a gem. So in one case, I was reading a book about timekeeping, and I was in the process of trying to show how timekeeping shaped culture. And I have to say that I was in trouble because 
as interesting as timekeeping may be to one population, I hadn't been able to figure out how to make it exciting to a larger population, i.e. it was dry and I was having a tough time finding something interesting. But as I was reading this very thick book, I read a sentence about midway through the book and it said in the 19th century, there was a woman who sold time. And I said, mm. what? <laughs> like, There's a woman who sold time. Please explain, explain yourself. What the heck does that mean? And so uh, with that sentence, I started delving other books and say, okay, who is this woman? Oh, her name is Ruth Belville. Okay, is there anything about Ruth Belville? I found old papers. I found a small book, uh, found some of her papers. And that's how I was able to draw out the story. And, and that is quintessentially how I went about crafting the book, finding interesting stories. And then once I find those interesting stories, then weave them together to tell an overall story about us, which is why I titled, entitled the book, The Alchemy of Us. Yes, yeah, that totally makes sense. And that story of Ruth um, in the first chapter is is a really striking story um, and also prevent, presents another example of how um, our our relationship with technology has, has changed us. Um, can you talk a little bit about how people's relationship with time has evolved? Um, there's some beautiful materials in that in that section. So I would love to hear about the quivering quartz and and yeah. Sure. Uh, well, let me just start with Ruth. I mean, Ruth had a business of selling time. And if I told you I was going to start a business of selling time right now, you would say, Anissa, that's ridiculous uh, because you could just look at your computer, your cell phone, you know the time. But when Ruth was in the world in the 19th century, people wanted to know the precise time. They had watches, but there wasn't television or radio to tell people the precise time so that they can change the arm, the minute hand and the, and the hour uh, hand on their on their clock. So she would make her way over to Greenwich with her precise pocket watch and then get the precise time and make her way over to different businesses and to other customers who wanted to know the precise time. So so that's one of the things that kind of shows how we started to become obsessed with time, so much so that someone could have a business based on selling it. But timekeeping is 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 quite old. Uh, you know, if you think of sundials and water clocks that the Romans used to have and also uh, hourglasses, we knew about the passing of time. I knew that, okay, half of the sand has been removed, so, but I didn't know the actual time. Okay, it's 3.15. I didn't know that. In order to do that, we needed better materials so that we can have accurate clocks. So in The Alchemy of Us, I talk about one gentleman named Benjamin Huntsman who figured out how to make springs, steel springs, so that uh, we can have precise clocks. And, and he did a lot of that work in secret. And because of his uh, special formula for his steel springs, uh, his clocks became famous all over the country and all over England. And I then later talk about how we wanted more precise ways of keeping time. And springs were surpassed by quartz, uh, by quartz gems. Quartz gem, quartz has this unusual ability that if you zap it in an electrical circuit, it actually wiggles, it vibrates. And those vibrations can be counted because it does a certain number of vibrations per minute, per second. And if you can count them, then you can have slices of time and be able to mark off time very precisely. So I talk about Warren Marison in The Alchemy of Us because he figured out how to make the first quartz clock. Now, if you look at old clocks, like maybe one your grandmother had or one on the wall, it will say quartz at the bottom. That's Warren Marison's invention. And most people don't know about Warren Marison. So I talk about the desire for uh, 
more innovation in making more and more accurate clocks. And then later in the chapter in The Alchemy of Us, I talk about how timekeeping actually shifted culture. And the name of the chapter is Interact. And I name it that because I'm trying to show how we moved away from our natural cues. We used to keep time by the position of the sun, sunrise, sunset, high noon. But then we started keeping, uh, then we started to, to divorce ourselves from those natural cues to keeping by the clock. Uh, I used to, before the clock, I used to eat when my stomach growled. Now I eat, well, 11, 30, 12. I just kind of keep to the clock. So natural cues have been separated from us as a result of the clock. I also talk about how our brains actually keep time. And it ends up, even though we have very, very precise clocks, our brains keep time by the shape of our memory. That is the length of our memory. So many of us may remember uh, our youth and we had many new activities. We went to summer camp. We met new people. We had all these great experiences. The summers of our youth seem quite long because we had a lot of new experiences. However, as an adult, uh, we have less new experiences. You know, we're reading email, we're commuting, we're doing errands. Our brain doesn't register that as new. And so even though the summer in our, even though the summers are the same length, our memories are different shapes. And so our, our memories see the times where we do things that are not as interesting as smaller. So that's what I'm trying to convey in the alchemy of us, that although our clocks are very precise, um, that really isn't how our bodies and how our brains register life, how it registers time. And so that's what I was trying to bring to bear in, in my book, The Alchemy of Us. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the characteristics of many of the people that you included in your book. A lot of them seem to be people that weren't necessarily full-time scientists that put curiosity to work. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, lay people and, and their interaction with science? Sure. Um, that's a very good question. Uh, in the book, The Alchemy of Us, you'll notice that many of the inventors don't have PhDs. They were just trying to solve a problem that was in front of them. Uh, Samuel Morse, he created the American version of the telegraph. Well, that actually came from tragedy. Uh, Morse would have loved to have had a telegraph in his own life. You see, he had one of the biggest, com he was a painter. He had one of the biggest commissions of his life. He was in Washington, D.C., and his home was in New Haven, Connecticut. And he's writing a letter home telling his wife about all the wonderful things that are going on. And he sends the letter, and he knows that he's going to get the, a return letter from her in about two weeks because it takes about a week to get to there, and it takes about a week to get back. But a couple of days later, he gets a letter back. Uh, he gets a letter from New Haven from his father, who also lives in New Haven. And he finds out in the letter that his wife had died. The moment that Morris had written that letter to his wife, she had already passed. So he was just a person who was well primed to want to create a way to instantly communicate. And there are many stories like that in The Alchemy of Us. You'll find other inventors who don't necessarily have any particular background, any particular background in science, but they just wanted to solve a problem. And it ends up that that invention helped other people in other ways, too. Right. Um, another example that comes to mind is from the photography chapter um, with the Reverend Hannibal Goodwin. Um, do you mind talking about his desire to make the perfect film? And <laughs> Hannibal Goodwin is one of my favorite characters, to be honest. Um, I found out about him by accident. I was writing in The Alchemy of Us about photography, and I was going to write about George Eastman. But as I was researching... I heard about this reverend, an Episcopalian preacher who made camera film before 
before George Eastman. And again, I was like, what? Uh, what's this story all about? So I actually went to Newark where Hannibal Goodwin lived and got as much uh, and got materials about him to, to get his story. And Hannibal Goodwin was a much beloved preacher who is, who lived in Newark and uh, also ran Sunday school in his home. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to have during Sunday school, he wanted to have pictures that were projected on the wall. And at that time it was with a thing called a magic lantern. You can think of it as a projector, but it, it was pretty heavy at, at the time. He essentially wanted to do PowerPoint for the kids. And uh, it required that you put glass slides with the images into the magic lantern. Well, when his, when his students wanted to help out, they would often break those glass slides. And he said, well, there's got to be a better alternative uh, for, these photo- for photographic images to be stored, not just on glass, but on something that's more flexible and durable. So he went, around the, he went ab- about the business of creating fex- – he went around about the business of cl- creating camera film. And he did so in his attic. And he, it took him about 10 years until he finally got a plastic camera film. And in The Alchemy of Us, I, I tell the story about how he went to go patent his camera film and end up, ended up in a legal battle with George Eastman, who around the same time also create a, created a form of camera film. Right. Yeah, that's sort of a David and Goliath story. Um, Absolutely. Are there other examples of stories where little guys were up against powerful entities but managed to do their innovative work hmm that's a good question i have another story but again it seems like the big guy won and this story is uh edison versus uh william wallace uh edison wasn't thinking about the electric light and so he came up to connecticut and he met a gentleman named william wallace who had created an early form of electric light called an arc lamp which was far too bright to be in the home. But this inspired Edison to go back to New Jersey to start working on his electric lamp. Uh, so their story, so in the alchemy of us, I tell you the, the origin story of the electric light, which is not just Edison creating his, his, his version of the light, but the visit to Connecticut to William Wallace, this little known inventor who actually should be in history books because he was a catalyst for the electric light. But in, in many of the stories, I mean, the major characters are, are, are people that we know. And so oftentimes they do trump the, uh, the little known characters. But I do highlight the little known characters because they were instrumental in many of these inventions, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, I don't know, the endeavor of science is people building on top of other people's discoveries over and over. Right. Well, I tell the story about Edison because I want people to see another side to Edison. People think of Edison as this great genius. Uh, Edison had a lot of people working for him, and sometimes he um, took advantage of people who were not as famous. And so you see that Edison is not really the nicest guy. That was the point of uh, in that chapter of the in the Alchemy of Us. Uh, it's the chapter called C. I wanted to tell you the origin story of the light bulb. We think of Edison as the creator of the light bulb, but he wasn't. He wasn't this fantastic, glamorous guy. He really took advantage of people who really wanted to be uh, affiliated with him. And so we see that in the story with him and William Wallace. Mm-hmm. Right. All these people, although we might look up to them, are kind of they're as, as mixed in terms of character as any of us may be today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's what I tend to do in The Alchemy of Us. The Alchemy of Us is really about telling you the human side of the story. I could have written a very short book and just said, well, Edison created the light bulb. 
and he visited William Wallace. But now you hear about William Wallace's desire to want to be an inventor like Edison and how thrilled he was to have Edison come and visit him. This was going to be his moment. And then Edison is, is enamored with what he sees. But when he departs Wallace's home, he says, Wallace, I think you're going in the wrong direction. I'm going to beat you. So you can see the heartbreak that Wallace uh, has has to experience as well. So we go through all of the emotions with the characters. It's 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 narrative. It's not just dry prose, but you actually learn about the people, the key inventors, and their motivations, and and feel their emotions too. Mm, yeah, that's so true. I definitely felt that in this story. I think I felt pretty sad for William Wallace as well. <laughs> Um, it also strikes me that the materials are sort of a character in the book as well, um, in a sense that they are shaping humans and shaping human society. Um, do you also mind talking a little bit about how humans' use of all these different kinds of materials have influenced the natural world? Well, in the chapter uh, that I talk about with Edison, I talk about the light bulb. And that was a fantastic thing because we wanted to push back the darkness. We used to live, uh, we used to live by sunlight and then candlelight. And living by candle candlelight at night wasn't wasn't ideal. So Edison went and created his light bulb. But now we have an abundance of light. So how is that changing us? Well, one of the things that's changing us is it's actually changed the natural world. And what I noticed uh, while I was writing my book is that. Uh, one of the, my favorite one of my favorite memories of a child as a child in the summer was to capture fireflies and i have fireflies in my backyard here in connecticut but the number has been decreasing and so i went to ask an expert about why that's the case and she says it has to do with the lights and i asked her why uh, well this is what she told me she told me that uh when what's going on in my backyard are actually uh fireflies who are looking and they're communicating with each other with these flashes of light because they're looking for a mate. But if the lights are too bright, they can't see each other. And so they don't know to communicate with each other so that they can find love. So our natural world is certainly being impacted by something that was created by humans. We created the light bulb so that we can see at night, which is great. But now we are actually impinging on the lives of other animals, particularly fireflies. So that's one of the things I highlight in The Alchemy of Us. Mm -hmm. And it also sort of relates, I mean, several of the different materials in the book, you know, crisscross each other in terms of theme and ramifications and all of that. Um, you also talk in the chapter on steel about how cities started to grow because of steel. And I, it strikes me that that also has impact for the natural world. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to cr put down steel rails, you need lots of trees because they go underneath the steel rails. Uh, you have to carve through mountains uh, to make tunnels. Uh, you have to pave uh, spaces so that you can put the steel rails down. So, uh, so yeah, the crisscrossing of the nation with steel rails actually Im definitely impact impacted the natural world. I don't talk about that in great detail, but it's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if there's a story in this book that you found the most surprising. Oh, that's a very good question. But well, the thing that I found surprising was the telegraph. Um, I, I've never thought much about it. I think that's you know it's a very simple device based on controlling the flow of electricity, so you can make dot, dots and dashes. But while, what I found while writing the Alchemy of Us is that it it actually changed language. 
As I mentioned earlier, Samuel F.B. Morse created the telegraph because he wanted to find a way to instantly communicate. And the telegraph became part of um, the American fabric. There were telegraph offices all over the country. And a customer could go to the telegraph office and send a message anywhere they wanted. But there was usually uh, some kind of rule that told the person that they had to be brief. Now, why is that? Well, it ends up that the telegraph was a fantastic way to shuttle information across the country. But it had a limitation. It could not handle many messages at the time to- at a time. And so the telegraph office wanted to keep the lines free for other customers. And so they told people to be brief so that they can send their message and so that another person can send their message. Well, and, and, and what I should also say is they actually set up a pricing structure to encourage this. So a message that was 10 words was a flat fee. And if you wanted to send an additional word, additional word, it was one tenth that fee. Well, it ends up that uh, people would send messages and they would be less than 10 words. The average message was about 12 words. Now, telegraphs actually became part of newsrooms because, again, it was a fantastic way to send information across the country and and get news from all over the country. But editors would tell reporters to be succinct. And the reason, again, is because the telegraph had a limitation. It couldn't handle a lot of information uh, at the same time. Now, there was one reporter who really loved this telegraph style of short declarative sentences, and he went on to become a very, very famous author. His name is Ernest Hemingway. So what I learned while writing The Alchemy of Us is that this simple device of sending information using dots and dashes actually shaped language. It shaped sentences. And that was very surprising to me. Now, there were other cultural forces that shaped American English, I should say. It's not just this technology. America wanted to individuate itself from the UK, and one of the ways that we did that was with the way that we use language. But there was also a technological force as well, and that was the telegraph. So I found that to be completely surprising when writing uh, my book, The Alchemy of Us, because I had no idea that things that I'm saying right now were shaped by the telegraph. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. The way we talk can be traced back to this invention. Absolutely. Um, I am curious if there are things that you came to about the materials that you write about that you would have liked to include it in the book, but maybe weren't able to or that ended up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a couple of stories that ended up on the cutting cutting room floor and and um, you know you, you have to do that so because it has to serve the book. But there is a story in the chapter about light. I had I took two different pa- there were two different p- potential paths when I was talking about light. One was the impact on us, particularly light pollution, and another was more of a social justice approach. And it ends up that um, in the story about light, there was a gentleman whose name was um, uh, Wilkie J L Wilkinson, who is a uh, owner of a, a baseball team in the Negro National League. He he was white and he owned this team, and uh, they were in the pro. It was during the depression and they were going to fold. They weren't going to make it. So he came up with a clever idea of a portable lighting system that he could travel all over the country and have nighttime games. And it was this discovery or this this invention that he made that made it possible for this league to stay solvent during the Depression. And it ends up that his team, the Kansas City Monarchs, they were actually the team that Jackie Robinson started. And Jackie Robinson 
as you know, went on to integrate baseball. So I talk about how this invention of a portable lighting system, which, which allowed this team to survive, actually helped to open up the country more later down the road. So I, I have other stories like that, that, that didn't make it to the book, but, um, um, maybe they'll have another life. Hmm. That's a really fascinating story. What was the innovation or invention that this man came up with that allowed him to have a portable light? Well, he used a, a portable light that was made. The filament was a little he he didn't invent it, but he put these things together. Uh, and the light bulb was a little different than Edison's light bulb because Edison's light bulb couldn't survive traveling uh, on bumpy roads before highways. It ends up that the the filament actually evolved. There were some GE scientists, some General Electric scientists, who found out how to make more robust filaments, and they made it out of tungsten. And so. That's the discovery that made it possible for this lighting, portable lighting system to travel all throughout the Midwest to have these nighttime baseball games. Ah, okay. Um, and I am, I guess I'm wondering what other materials do you think should be part of the story? Or maybe are there, are there materials that you're watching now? Ooh, materials that I'm watching now. Well, the last chapter, which is Think, I thought was one of the more important things that we should consider because a lot of these technologies have happened some time ago. But the think chapters, I, I talk the think chapter is where I talk about how we are being shaped right now by technology. And the think chapter is about the evolution of the silicon chip. It actually had some very modest, uh, it had a modest origin story. It actually came from the tele, the telephone. Uh, the telephone was this wonderful invention created by Alfred, uh, Alexander Graham Bell. But Alexander Graham Bell, his invention could only talk between two people. You know, I, I would call you and that would be the end of our telephone system. And what was needed was a way to call multiple people. I could call into somebody and they would redirect my call to the person that I wanted to speak to. What was needed was a switchboard. And all that was that consisted of a range of different switches that was created by George Coy, which he did uh, in New Haven. Soon there was a desire to have more an, a more automated form of a switchboard, and that actually was generated and created by a mortician, who his name was Amon Stroger, who created it because well he was convinced that the operator at the time uh, was directing business away from his mortician business to his competition. So he's like, I want to get the human out of this thing, and so he made an automated an automated version of the switch. Le- years later, the Bell uh, uh, Bell Bell Labs needed to have a more sophisticated version of that switch, and so they created the transistor. But the transistor also became the heart of the computer, and it's allowed us to do the computing and use, you know, Word and all these different doc- all these different applications that we use today. But it ends up that the silicon transistor, which is the heart of the computer and the heart of the internet, is actually shaping us, because it, it's been found that we don't have the same relationship to information that we had in the past. I, I put it this way. I remember my childhood phone number. But if you ask me to tell you my mother's phone number right now, I can't. Uh, I love my mother, but I don't remember her phone number. Why is it? Well, I have a new relationship to information. I don't remember what the information is. I remember where the information is. And this has been documented for most of us. We don't store the information, but we know where it's located. 
So we've now offset our information to the web, to our computers, to our cell phones. This has impact. This has an impact on how we will think and how we will create and how we will know things in the future. So this is one of the things that I highlight in, in the alchemy of us that this simple invention, which was used to make more sophisticated telephone systems, which eventually became our computer and the internet is actually rewiring our brains right now. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I am curious if there are materials that you're sort of looking at that didn't make it in the book. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> any materials that didn't make it in the book? Well, I'm interested in aluminum. Aluminum is great because uh, we don't think much about it because it's our, our soda cans. Um, aluminum is a very light metal. At one point, it used to be precious. It used to be more expensive than gold. Uh, that's because aluminum loves to bond to oxygen and it was hard to separate it from oxygen. In fact, at one point, the Washington Monument had an aluminum point. That doesn't seem like much to us today. We're like a, an, a, a soda can on the point. But we were trying to show off how uh, prestigious and how uh, fantastic we were because we put a very precious metal at the time, aluminum, on the top of the of, of the Washington Monument. But aluminum was also important because we use it for planes. We needed to use, we needed a very light metal, and it's a light metal. And if we build certain structures called trusses, we can make a very strong material, a st- strong me- metal out of it. Uh, and so it has allowed us to fly. So this metal has has also uh, is has also made the world smaller because we're now able to travel distances much further and farther than we could before before boat and by train. So uh, that would have been a material that I would have focused on if I had more time, more space. Mm, got it. Yeah, that is an interesting one. And aluminum is something that we often use every day. It's in all of our kitchens, but it also takes a lot of energy to make that material. Right, right. When we don't think much of it, we drink our soda and we put it in the recycling bin. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, so up until recently, I actually mostly wrote about science for kids. And I'm wondering uh, what you would want kids to understand about the material world or the people behind it. Oh, there's so many kids stories in the alchemy of us. I would tell them about the lady who stole sold time and, uh, you know, tell her tell the origin story about how she went about doing her business. And then I would focus on the watch itself uh, briefly to show to show, well, this is made possible by these different materials working in sync. Um, people don't think much about how their watches work. I could tell the story of quartz. Quartz is a fantastic story because, you know, you may see it in a gem store. You may not know that it has this interesting behavior where it can actually vibrate when it's in an electrical circuit. It has this, this property called piezoelectricity and that its vibrations are used to count off time. So um, if I were focusing on if I was focusing on telling stories to, to children, I would definitely tell them these interesting stories about these different materials. Um, the, the quartz, as I mentioned, um, some of them may be a little too esoteric, maybe not so interesting. So I would tell them about the person who made that possible. Um, Pyrex, which is in most people's homes. Very few people know that there was a housewife who came up with the idea. She had broken her casserole dish and was very upset about that and had asked her husband, can't you think of some kind of alternative? Fortunately, he worked at Corning and was working on a very robust form of glass, which he brought a piece home and she made a wonderful cake in it. And this became a huge industry. 
uh, that would be a wonderful children's book too. So, um, so there's many of these types of stories in the alchemy of us that easily could be translated so that young people could understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what's neat about many of these stories is they really show that it took a diversity of people to find and come up with a lot of these technologies. Absolutely. And I, and the reason why I wrote the book the way I did with stories and also with high, highlighting the human side, their failings and flaws is that I wanted people of all different backgrounds to resonate. Maybe they didn't look, they didn't weren't of the same demographic as the inter- inventor, but oh, this person was heartbroken or oh, this person didn't fit in or oh, this person was kind of clumsy. Uh, these things, well, we resonate with them on some level. And so by telling the human stories, we're able to connect with the characters and the science is just kind of peppered in. So it's really a story about invention and, and overcoming challenges and how and, and lastly, what I, which is the aim of the book, to show how those inventions shaped all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere in the book, I read that you were approaching traditional texts of your discipline sort of with a fresh point of view. What were some of those traditional texts? Well, I'm, what I meant specifically was the history of science texts. And also, um, there, is, there are quite a few books about materials um, and, that are targeted for the popular audiences. And they tend to profile the material, chapter on steel, chapter on copper, tell you all about the copper. I'm going to tell you about the ancient people who use this material and, and then how we use it today. And, and that's what I meant. I took a different approach because I don't go to the origin story of the material. I just take a snapshot of when it became important to the certain invention. I focus on the individual who helped make that possible. So that's what I mean. I, I took a different approach instead of just using profiles and telling you the whole, all the details about copper and all the details about silicon. I do not do that. I tell you enough for the story to take place. So that's what I meant by taking a different approach. Mm-hmm. And has writing the book changed the way that you look at the objects or materials around you? Well, being a material scientist, I, I have always had a different approach because I always think, oh, what? why did they choose this material? In fact, a couple of years ago, I went to dinner with a few people who are ceramists, people who work in ceramics. And before dinner happened, before the food was dished out, two of the old timers turned their plate over t- to find out where the plate came from. So material scientists look at materials very, very differently. Uh, you know, most people would just look at the plate and say, okay, I wonder where, where dinner is coming. Uh, when, when is dinner coming? And they're like, oh, where did this plate come from? Oh, how did they make it? So I kind of have that approach, maybe not to that extent, but that's how I've been viewing the world. But what I learned by writing The Alchemy of Us is not just looking at the material, but the person and the motivation and how they went about doing it and and things that they had to overcome. I knew about the material, but I didn't know the motivation for why steel was made or why the quartz came about or how silicon came to be. I can tell you all about silicon. I can tell you about electrons and, and semiconductors, but I never knew why it was made. That's not explained to us in, in our material science text and curriculum. So now I have that information. And so I feel that when I can talk to people who are not necessarily in the sciences, I don't need to jump in and tell you all about the material. But I'm like, let me tell you a story about how this came to be. That's more, engage, more engaging. That will pull people in. So, I, so I've been uh, – the alchemy that I've undergone is that I have a new layer to understand the world. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you share a little bit of the origin of that in the introduction. Um, do you mind talking about your glass blowing a little bit? Sure, sure. So um, I, I've been a sci- I've wanted to be a scientist for a very, very long time. And what motivated me was a television show long time ago called 321 Contact. And in it was an African-American girl solving problems. And when I saw her, I, I said, I saw my reflection. So I loved science from a very young age and knew I wanted to be a scientist from a, since I was very young and went off to college. And in, in that, in, while going to college, it wasn't clear that I was going to be a scientist because the introductory courses almost derailed me from becoming a scientist. But eventually I did become a scientist. And when I graduated, I said, you know what? I'm going to do some, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to make sure that everything, anything I can do to make science interesting to other people, it, that's going to be my mission. I don't know how that's going to look, but that's what I'm going to do. Well, I was a science, I had been a scientist for a very, very long time. And I decided that I wanted to learn something new about material science, but not necessarily in material science class, but maybe learn glass blowing. Um, I've always found it to be interesting and I bet there's a lot of things that I know from the scientific point of view that will actually happen in this class. So I'm taking some glass blowing classes and, uh, but I have to say that I'm actually taking a very, very cautious approach when I'm taking this glass blowing class because, uh, I'm, I'm sometimes forgetful and I knew that I might hurt myself because this glass is very, very hot. So whenever I went to glass blowing class, I would use, usually make a very small vase. And that took uh, putting my pipe into the glass, taking out a small amount of glass, uh, blowing a very, very small bubble, and then shaping a very small vase. And as a result of this approach, I had dozens of these glass vases. And I would give them to my friends, and my friends were very kind because they would accept them even though they were like, you know, um, tilted or not symmetrical, but they were very encouraging. And they would say, Anissa, you should make something bigger. And I said, hmm. I'm never going to make anything bigger because it's very dangerous to work with this glass. But there was one glass blowing class that I decided that I was going to make something bigger because I had a terrible day at work. Uh, there were layoffs going on. There was a lot of hugging, a lot of crying. And by the time I got to glass blowing class that evening, I was very, very raw. So I put my pipe into the vat and I took out a ton of glass and I blew a huge bubble. And then I did things I hadn't done before that I saw my friends do, which is they would swing the glass, which would make it longer. And they would rotate the glass, which would make it wider. And I started doing this, and I was making one of the best pieces I had ever made. It was huge. Now, I had one more step. All I had to do was put it into the furnace and uh, for a flash of heat, and then I could remove it from my pipe and put it over to the area where it cooled. But as I put it into the furnace... I'm talking to my friend because I'm, I'm just talking about how wonderful this piece is and I get distracted. The piece stays in the furnace too long and when I take it out, it is incandescent orange, so it is very, very hot. And what used to be uh, parallel to the pipe is now hanging off the pipe and about to fall off. Now, I didn't know very much in terms of glass blowing skill, but I knew all I had to do was rotate the pipe 180 degrees and the glass piece would rotate itself. But because it was so hot, it kept falling to its new lower side. So I rotated the piece, it went to its new lower side. I rotated the piece, it went to its new lower side. I was actually pleading with the piece. I said, look, please just just stop. Just, just, just remain flat. I, I don't really know what to do. Eventually, this, this dance that I was with the glass piece of rotating it, 
and it going to its new lower side, eventually the piece just fell off the pipe. Now, my instructor had been watching what was going on. He came over. He picked up the piece with his uh, – he had heat-resistant gloves. He attached it to the mm-hmm. pipe. He put it into the furnace. He tried to shape it so that it was round again. It wasn't really. He gave it to me. And I did what I should have done before, which is put it into the furnace, take it out, and then uh, put it to where it should be cooled. Now, as it's cooling and as I'm calming down from this event, I'm thinking about this dance that the piece and I had undergone. I was shaping it because, well, this is glass blowing, but it was actually shaping me because I was in a bad mood when I got to the class and now I'm in a decent mood. So this is what put me on the journey to explore how materials and humans have shaped each other. That was the uh, origin story of this book. Mm, Yeah, it's a really neat story, and it's a great example from your own life. (laughs) So this has been a really fascinating book. Um, Would you be willing to share with me what you're doing next? Oh, great. Uh, I would love to. Um, I am working on a couple of things. I'm auditioning different ideas. I definitely have a children's book that will come out. Uh, while writing The Alchemy of Us, I discovered an African-American woman inventor who got a patent in 1892 for something that's in all of our homes. She invented the ironing board. So I want to talk about her in a children's book because she's sort of the hidden figures of the 19th century. Um, I'm in the process of also uh, putting together a new book to look at technology, but kind of explore the biases that we have in technology. Um, so that's also something that's on the horizon too. Um, mm. and, uh, I just continue to write narrative science stories. I, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy going to archives and finding stories that are little known and telling people about the inventors and how they shaped us. So still working on those kinds of projects as well. Mm, that's exciting. Something to look forward to. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Anissa. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You can find the show notes for this episode at scienceforthepeople.ca. We've linked to Anissa's website where you can learn more about The Alchemy of Us and other books she has written. On our page, you'll also find links to our show on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe, or leave a review. If you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting the show by donating through our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you as it has me to take a closer look at the stuff that surrounds us. We'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>